Autonomous fleets are quickly becoming the new topic of conversation among the trucking, rail, and aviation industries. However, with optimistic promises of safety and efficiency improvements comes caution regarding cybersecurity and legal risks. How will autonomous trucking impact the freight rail industry and vice versa? Will unmanned aerial vehicles become the future of aviation autonomy? In this episode, we invite special guest Mike Wiegand to discuss these benefits and risks of what the autonomous future has in store for fleet assets. Mike Wiegand is a Shift 5 founder and is its chief growth officer. He's a former Army cyber officer, computer nerd, infosec and drone enthusiast, turned entrepreneur who loves all things control systems within heavy vehicles. Mike, welcome back to the show. Josh, excited to be here. Getting some frequent flyer miles in. It's been a fun uh, last two weeks. Uh, let's see. Checked off Florida, the uh, Emerald Coast, and uh, boy, where was I before? I can't remember. You're sending me everywhere, man. I know. I know. And you got some more travel coming. And it's a topical uh, topical event for you to be uh, traveling so much because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, autonomous vehicles in this episode. Um I think no matter whether you're in the air, on water, or land, or on rails, um, there's always these conversations that crop up around whether uh, a pilot actually needs to be in the asset, in the fleet asset, um, conveying goods and services around, um, because technology's gotten so good these days that in some situations, uh, it's actually safer to operate it without a pilot uh, or an engineer or a driver than it is to... um, uh, than it is to have a, a human being in the in the cockpit with all of our uh, faults and foibles. Um, but that kind of um, begs a bunch of questions around cybersecurity. We've seen, you know, uh, operational technology asset owners like water municipalities, um, rail operators, uh, even meatpacking plants getting hit with um, nefarious actors doing things to digital electronics that are required to, um, for these businesses to do their job. And I think it, and even the New York MTA, right? Um, I think it was last week, um, got hit with ransomware. And so uh, some of us in the cybersecurity community start thinking immediately of, well, yeah, sure, there's some really great operational benefits to having autonomous vehicles. But um, given that there's a pretty big target on some of these uh, industries from uh from hackers, uh, what are we doing to make sure that these systems don't get compromised by by a winning adversary and and some really bad stuff could happen? Well, the first thought that comes to mind is that you know Tesla started taking their cars to DefCon, which uh, I'm told is going to be in person in Vegas this year. I'm uh, pretty excited to see that coming back after it was canceled last year, and uh, and they like let the entire community loose. Um, with, uh, if I recall correctly, like suitcases of cash available for anybody that found vulnerabilities. But I think Josh, honestly, um, after speaking with, you know, a number of members, uh, uh, you know, senior leaders across different commercial uh, industries, I think the answer right now is uh, is not a lot. We spoke on a, a previous episode on here about, you know, who's accountable, who's responsible for cyber vulnerabilities on platforms. Is it the original equipment manufacturer or is it the operator? Um, how do those responsibilities change as a piece of equipment evolves through its life cycle? Is it in warranty or what if it's a 20 year old piece of equipment? Um, you know, who, who's got to fix this stuff? I think it, it goes without saying that we need to have secure systems if they're going to be 
autonomous um, and be able to you know operate without a, a human in the loop. Uh, but even with a human in the loop, uh, we see that most modern systems are fly-by-wire. And so the computers are still ultimately in control. And so regardless of the autonomy uh, conversation, I think that you know cybersecurity is a must on on these systems. Um, but you know which which vertical do we want to dive into first? You mentioned rail, you mentioned aviation. I'll just say that you know UAVs are like an early life passion of mine. I got started in the model airplane like building community. Uh, boy, gosh, as like a teenager, and uh, uh, in some ways never left. I still have a ton of them uh, in my garage, like hanging from the ceiling and. Do you want to start there, or do you want to talk rail? Where do we go? I mean, uh, if I maybe I can flip the script and uh, and and like ask you the question of what are some of the unifying things? Why do these things get uh, joined into the same conversation? Like, what are some of the unifying um, engineering principles between aircraft and rail and ground vehicles that make them susceptible to some of these problems that we're talking about? Yeah, great question. So, you know, if I were uh, to break this down for my mom, um, hi, mom, I hope you're listening. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, step one, any autonomous vehicle is going to need some type of computer controlled uh, control system, uh, some type of master controller. And there's going to be a high level executive function, uh, which is going to be managed. And then there's going to be uh, multiple low level, um, uh, you know, control algorithms that are are working to, in the case of an aircraft, keep it stabilized across all of its axes of movement, or, you know, if we're talking a train, um, apply the appropriate tractive motor effort to, you know, each, uh, you know, set of wheel bearings that is geared to, or, or, or wheels, wheel shafts that are geared to uh, a traction motor. Um, so we're always going to find computers at the center of anything that is autonomous, obviously. Um, What's interesting from my perspective is that the control loops and the control processes and the technology that underpins these modern control systems is by and large the same. Uh, often you're going to have on more complex systems a distributed network, um, and you're going to have multiple uh, you know, engine control units or, I'm sorry, uh, electronic control units that are all communicating on some type of shared network, and they need to communicate according to a set schedule. Um, because of that real-time dependency, often you're going to find uh, real-time operating systems being used, ensuring that everybody can kind of talk and do the appropriate calculations and, and coordinate with one another. Because you don't want one computer holding up the show on an airplane, right? That might that might cause the control surfaces to be a little slow. Maybe not what you want as you're as you're coming into land. So. Uh, on sufficiently large systems, I think these are some of the commonalities that you're going to find, irrespective of the domain. Uh, you know, whether we're talking air, land, sea, undersea, space, um, you're almost always going to find those in, uh, uh, you know, at a certain scale and sophistication. And what strikes me about planes, trains, and tanks is that, like, these are not new items, right? Locomotives have been around since the 1800s. Aviation, like we've been flying planes for almost 100, maybe probably over 100 years at this point. Um, you know, World War II, you had had many weapon systems that look more or less similar to how they look today. But then in the 60s, we got the transistor. And for some reason, there's this like irresistible attraction to, to these fleet assets for digital components. Like given that there's just so much complexity in what you described, I mean, you almost need a PhD in, in, in electronics engineering to even understand what's going on in these things. Like, 
why why are there so many electronic components on these assets? Yeah, so I think that the you know the automation movement is born out of that continual pressure to find efficiencies in operations and maintenance in um, ultimately in customer satisfaction and delivery. Right, um, railroads, as an example, have been evolving technology so that they can operate more efficiently and meet customer demands and scale demand. Um, and ultimately, you know, our, our economy is underpinned by, you know, these continual improvements to processes, uh, to systems, uh, that we take, you know, for granted often, um, anybody that's ever been to Walmart or target or, or whatever, you know, the majority of those goods probably got there, especially if it's, if you're not within trucking distance of a port, probably got there with, uh, you know, trucks, uh, well, certainly with trucks, but, uh, also probably with some type of intermodal rail transport. So our supply chains are incredibly diverse and you know, there, there are more people and goods to move than ever before. Uh, just speaking for rail, but also for trucking, we haven't made appreciable improvements in, um, in our capital infrastructure across the country, right? We haven't really been setting out to build new highway systems and to lay new track across the country. If anything, um, I think in rail, it's gone perhaps the opposite way, where we've actually closed thousands of miles of, uh, you know, of rail lines over the last couple of years. And yet, the system is moving more goods than ever before. So these efficiencies come from right that automation. And, and it's a necessary uh, thing. The challenge, and I think why we, why we keep talking about cybersecurity, is uh, these were not requirements uh, that were taken into consideration by designers decades ago. Um, and now it's kind of crept up on us, and it takes time to, uh, you know, to change design requirements and the life cycle equipment. Um, and I think that we'll continue to see the field move. So, I mean, these systems are already designed; they're out there. They're like moving goods and services. They're doing a they're they're doing a pretty good job moving goods and people around the country. Like we can't go back and redesign these systems. I think I've heard you say before. It's honestly almost more expensive to just to redesign these systems and to just buy entirely new assets because you, you know, so much of the expenses you're, you're talking about the nervous system of these, of these, of these um, assets, what can be done? I mean, if they're already designed, they're already kind of vulnerable. Um, how do we, as a cybersecurity community grapple with that reality? Yeah. So if, you know, borrowing some terms from IT cybersecurity, if if adding endpoint protection and securing the firmware and software on most of those electronic control units that typically govern specific functions or subsystems, if that is too difficult um, to do in the immediate term, then uh, looking, you know, stepping back and looking at like the, the NIST risk management framework, um, implementing capabilities that allow you to at least detect the threat. Um, at least do some type of configuration control and management are the first steps. And often they're the most efficient. You can add devices to monitor passively you know, many of the onboard communications networks that tie all of these systems together. That's obviously what we do. But you know, the next step is to work with those suppliers and to communicate you know, a strong desire for cybersecurity to be in uh, you know, new equipment. So rail's really interesting because locomotives are typically repowered at least once or twice, meaning they they strip the you know the the train down almost to its chassis. They lift out that giant prime mover diesel engine. They'll put a new one in, and when they do that and they rebuild these things, they often make uh, you know sometimes substantial 
automation improvements. Um, one of the most notable in the rail industry is, is General Electric's trip optimizer. This was a microprocessor controlled uh, you know, fuel uh, monitoring and, and uh, engine idle, uh, idle point you know, setting system. And while trains were underway, it would monitor a bunch of different factors and it would, uh, it would control uh, you know, the prime mover's RPM. Saves a ton of fuel. This is great for the environment. It's great for the consumer. But, you know, ironically, this is a system that is, um, you know, getting pretty long in the tooth now. It's still running on microprocessors when we could probably ingest way more sensor inputs and do even more advanced things to uh, up the efficiency ante. Um, so, you know, when a system comes in for repower that might have that, you know, microprocessor-based system without any modern cybersecurity controls, doesn't have any type of firmware or software um, implemented. You know, I think uh, the industry can send a strong signal that, hey, there's interest in the next evolution of this product, having some of these controls and plugging into a larger and more thoughtfully integrated monitoring system, just like we have deployed in our IT networks today, where our computers have endpoint protection, they can communicate with host-based monitoring systems that are tied in with all of these other layered security approaches that you often talk about. I mean, what's so interesting about what you said is when we were talking about kind of the state of the art for cybersecurity of legacy systems, things that we really can't change the design of, you know, the, one of the first things you do is you start pulling data in and trying to figure out if there are compromises and, you know, observing traffic inputs and outputs if you can't if you can't redesign the thing that's insecure at least put some some armor around it so that you can see how it's being interacted with and, and mitigate the damage potentially right it's a data problem right you also mentioned you know i think a really cool example of the ge trip optimizer where you say well next generation hardware given all of the data that these assets are generating could like magnify performance even better and get even more efficiencies out of the way that you're operating or maintaining these assets. And those are all coming down to a data problem, right? Um, why, like, given that, you know, we've been putting electronic components in these systems for what, two decades now, at least, um, like why doesn't data take a front and center approach in, in these, uh, you know, front and center importance in these, in these assets? That's a great question. I think that it's starting to in commercial aviation. Uh, an interesting side benefit of you know the coronavirus pandemic that grounded you know significant percentages of like major uh, you know and global aviation fleets is that many of the airlines have retired their you know older uh, planes and the newer planes that are rolling off of the factory lines, uh, irregardless of who the OEM is, um, are creating and logging more data today than ever before. I think the aviation industry is one where uh, they recognize the value of that data, um, both to the operator, you know, the person that buys, the, buys and operates the plane, but also uh, to feedback to the OEM uh, so that they can make continual process improvement and improve you know, maintenance and efficiency, et cetera. Um, we haven't seen this trend, in my view, take hold to the same degree in other commercial industry verticals, but I predict that it will because the results out of the commercial aviation industry really speak for themselves. Um, when, you, when you democratize the data and you make it available 
um, in a normalized and labeled way to customers. It increases product stickiness. Um, it enables you know additional uh, innovation, third-party applications, and, and it provides an OEM you know a competitive advantage, especially when they're a first mover in that particular industry to to make that available. So. So that's my that that's about the perspective that I have today and, and my thoughts on that. But um, I, I hope that we can find another guest that can come on and and prove me wrong and, and showcase another industry where they're really leading the charge and in, in opening that data up and, and why. Yeah, and I mean I think the amount of data that will be generated on next generation of assets will only increase. I mean I, I have to imagine that autonomous systems. Uh, require even more sensor data and generate even more controls traffic than than current systems. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And as you continue to move toward greater levels of automation and certainly into autonomy, I mean, data is king. So it, the the example that uh, that comes to mind is is what Tesla did and how they led you know a a data revolution in auto in automotive. Why? Well. Uh, you need massive quantities of data in order for Tesla to appropriately train its autopilot features. Um, and in that feature set, you know, uh, Elon Musk has been pretty vocal about promising us, you know, the uh, our, our autonomous vehicles for a while. And I wish him success. I'm tired of driving. I want to just jump in the car and, and tell it where to take me and, and uh, work on email or take a nap. But it, it certainly, I think, proves the, the use case. And, and I believe that you know the other uh, automotive companies are are starting to pay attention and working it into uh, their newer models, but I think that there's still just a tremendous amount of work to be done in terms of um, onboard data collect. Again, the data normalization, the data piping. These are all actually pretty. I mean, they're they're solvable problems, but they can be, I think, complex for mobile assets. And so, certainly, I think data is going to be imperative to um, to to building autonomous systems and, and ensuring that, uh, that monitoring for you know the security of, the, of those autonomous features is, uh, is going to be a key element as well. And I also think, I mean, GE Trip Optimizer is such a kind of pivot point in digitization of rail assets from, you know, from my outsider perspective, I, I just, I think it's a, it's a really notable point on the timeline. And why it's so notable is that you're, you know, the machine is kind of giving you feedback about how you're operating, right? So you've got a person in, in the cab with decades of irreplaceable experience, um, and you've got this machine that's sort of helping to guide them to uh, get greater efficiencies. I remember reading in one of these, one of these books that the uh, G would give out these like um, these hats to the operators that had the most efficient runs and they sort of gamified it. So I, I think there's really like kind of avant-garde um, uh, thing to be doing. What's interesting to me about autonomous systems is that it closes the feedback loop. So instead of the machine telling an operator, hey, this is how you're doing, it's the machine telling the machine, hey, this is how you ought to do it. And so I feel like autonomous systems almost by definition uh, will have greater operating efficiency uh, than, than having people. I know this is probably controversial for, for folks that have spent a lot of time in these cabs, but I would imagine that for the vast majority of cases, uh, the machines are going to do a pretty good job of, of operating optimally. 
Well before, you know, either of us joined the rail industry, um, when GE was rolling out Trip Optimizer and its, uh, you know, digital cab system fire, you know, comes to mind as another example. Uh, I believe that they actually held a series of competitions where they challenged, you know, the, the best and most experienced um, uh, locomotive engineers uh, to attempt to achieve the same efficiency as what the micro, you know, controller system could do. And, and after, uh, you know, some control loop optimization and, uh, and what I imagine was a, a pretty cool controls engineering and math problem, uh, you know, was really kind of tightened down. Uh, I, I don't believe today that a human operator can fly a plane as well as an autopilot can, you know, drive a train as efficiently as, uh, you know, again, as an autopilot solution can. And, and I'm really excited for the day that we start to see this, um, in uh, in trucking, I, I think the the consumer benefits, um, you know the uh, you know merchants and others that rely on these services, uh, you know they certainly benefit. And, and with all of this, I, I predict we're also going to see a, a substantial improvement in you know asset status and uh, in load tracking. These are things that these different transportation industries have been working on for some time. Uh, we've all seen the evolution of like Amazon package. Uh, you know, delivery status notifications go from like where it was 10 years ago. It might arrive on this day. And, and now, you know, you know, when it's like in your neighborhood, right? Uh, Prime live, you can see exactly where the car is, right? Just like Uber Eats. Uh, I think that, you know, consumers and, uh, and shippers are going to start to uh, demand and, and provide those types of features and capabilities. Hopefully they provide them with really cool API hooks so that, uh, you know, people can create custom integrations and do some really exciting things with like their CRM solutions because there's just so much efficiency to be gained across, I think, the entire supply chain when you start to uh, to network and, and share the data in responsible ways. Yeah, it's funny when you, uh, uh, you talk about competition between man and machine because I, I don't know if I remember this right from grade school, but I think there's like this apocryphal story of... Um, uh, John Henry, wasn't it, with the uh, the steel driver, um, like racing the steam powered rock drilling machine across the the U.S. It's like some, you know, uh, manual versus uh, versus automated. I'm kind of like, I guess the the rail industry has a long history of um, of uh, you know pitting man versus machine. So we'll 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 wait out for the um, GE uh, the GE trip optimizer. You know. Um, trip across America and see who can get there on, on the least gas or something like that, I guess. Um, but there was a, I think, well, I mean, this is in so many different contexts. If I remember correctly, a couple months ago, there was a, um, uh, AI versus pilot, um, competition. DARPA the competition. Yeah, yeah. DARPA sponsored that. That was really cool. Uh, I was watching part of it on YouTube, I believe. And uh, ultimately, I believe that the AI uh, crushed everybody. <laughs> and what was interesting was that, if I recall correctly, the pilots were in simulators, of course. And um, some of I, I watched one engagement, Josh, where you know the, the planes, um, you know, came at one another and they're dogfighting, and they they wound up in, uh, you know, basically in a loop uh, where they were trying to get the inside edge and, and turn into the other. Uh, but they were perfectly balanced, basically flying a circle. And they had dropped altitude down to, uh, which at the Gs that they're pulling must have been incredibly dangerous if this was for real. But they were down at like maybe 500 feet 
above ground level. Um, the skill that's required to pull a 9G uh, turn for as long as they did at that altitude without making an error and like, you know, just hitting the ground, one is is near, you know, superhuman, right? So best pilots, uh, I think, in the in the nation were lined up against these uh, these AI algorithms. But I just have to imagine like at some point the machine's gonna gonna win out because in that scenario, how long can you can you hold a 9G turn? Even if you're in top fitness and you've had all this training, there's there are uh, you know just you know human limitations um, to uh, you know the forces that can be applied and and sustained. So I, I know that I'm saying things that are like sacrilege to uh, to fighter pilots, and somebody's going to stab me uh, <laughs> walking across the uh, the road later. So I will say that I think there are all kinds of aviation applications that require a human to be there. All right, so you guys heard me say it, but um, you know, certainly you're going to need unmanned wingman, you know, wingman, you know, to kind of fight some of these engagements and they'll, they'll have an advantage. There's just no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think there are biological limitations, right? I, I remember watching some of, um, my, my wife's, um, air force compatriots during summer training, they do like a G force simulator and you are like, you're in this centrifuge basically until you black out, they just like make it more and more, um, difficult to stay conscious. It's, it sounds terrible, but the idea is like basically the blood kind of like rushes out of your head and then you can't, um, you can't focus. Uh, machines don't have that problem. And so I would imagine that if you're pulling nine G's for an extended period of time, at some point, the machine's going to, going to win out. Um, no the, doubt. Uh, Unless yeah. you're Tom Cruise. So, uh, Unless you're Tom Cruise. Yeah. Top Gun 2 coming out this summer. I'm, I'm super excited. Are we going to do a watch party for that? I mean, Mike, I know we're, West Point guys, and you know we have uh, this is the Navy, which is you know consistently lower in the Forbes rankings for a good reason. Uh, but I think on this one we'll probably have to yield and uh, uh, watch it. That that the um, the the promo video did get me pretty pretty pumped up. Oh my so. gosh, I'm, I'm super <laughs> jazzed. It'll be um, my first experience back in a movie theater after uh, after the pandemic. I know, I know, I know. Um, America's back open, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, what's what's so interesting to me about these new generations of aircraft, I mean, the F-35 is a truly remarkable machine. Um, what does it generate? Terabytes of data uh, per flight, right? Um, I was hearing some pilots describe what it's like to drive, to, to fly the F-35. And so much of, like, the tedium is just automated, you know, like landing and accelerating and there's so much, like, autopilot. And, and the idea, I think, is to free the pilot's for higher level like activities to like be thinking about um, more important kind of operational concepts rather than the tactics of like keeping the airplane flying or, or whatnot. And um, commercial aircraft are, are increasingly like that, right? I mean, like how many, I think it's, isn't it, you, you told me this, it's actually more dangerous for the pilot to try to land uh, an aircraft. That's when a lot of the accidents happen to try to maintain their proficiency than it is to just sort of keep the um, keep the uh, the aircraft doing auto landings. So it's it's interesting because when I think about it from a almost a software perspective, it's like the components of all of the tasks, the the lower level tasks that a fleet asset has to do to perform its mission: take off, you know, navigate, land, um, go around kind of obstacles and things. 
they're already in a lot of ways there. It's just that we're, you know, we have a human being supervising, just like in a Tesla, you know, you have to sort of keep your hands on the wheel. Which I've been in, I've been in Teslas and it's a good idea to, to keep your hands on the wheel. Um, it, it, keep it your hands on the confused. wheel audience. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um, regardless of whether, you know, Mike's standing out there on the side of the road with a QR code that hacks your, your, your Tesla, you should still uh, keep your hands on the wheel. Um, but you know, it, it, it strikes me as like that, that's the next step, right. Is like just continuing to reduce the amount of, um, manual intervention that's required by the, uh, by the, by the human in the loop. Um, and it's kind of an interesting sociological question of when do we get comfortable with the idea of removing the person entirely? You know, I don't, I don't know if there are any like historical analogies to, to that, to that process of, you know, we've, we've fully automated I, actually um, elevators, right? Didn't we like used to have bellhops and then we, we like sort of at some point we we're like, okay, these are safe enough to operate on their own. And we sort of removed them. I wonder if, I wonder if we'll get to the, the same point, uh, know with some of these assets i i have no doubt that we will um i think that if you take a long view of like technology and and the arc of human history right we continually see uh you know our species applying innovation to automate menial menial and dangerous jobs typically i think is where it starts um but you know, today, I mean, we're so privileged to have this technology where, you know, many people can work from home, for example, over the last year, year and a half, a lot of us have discovered how to do that. Um, and, and now I think a lot of people are starting to appreciate that. Wow. Like this, um, this opens up a whole new frontier that, you know, leveraging technology, uh, in the context of transportation for automation allows people to elevate to higher levels of, you know, cognitive ability. So, Autopilots allow pilots to be more thoughtful about flight direction. It reduces their crew load. So they're not focused on keeping the wings level. They're focused on, all right, let me check my approach plates so that I can focus on and prepare and stay ahead of the aircraft because I'm you know, coming into busy airspace. I am approaching bad weather and um, you know, no longer am, am I just focused on you know, devoting 50% of my attention to just keeping wings level and, and doing my, like, uh, you know, my scan, they call it looking at your, you know, your critical instruments or, or out the window for VFR operations. So, uh, I think that these things are inevitable. Um, I hope that we also get it right. I think there's a social aspect to this that needs to be thoughtful, you know, um, but ultimately, um, I believe that automation empowers humans to do more productive things and it, it increases uh, our quality of life. Uh, maybe we ought to find somebody that takes a different view on that and invite them on the podcast next time, Josh, and, and, and debate that because there are some really good, I think, counterpoints to that I just want to acknowledge. But, um, but certainly automation um, in a number of transportation industries has unequivocally increased safety, it's increased efficiency, and it's lowered costs. And those are all good things. They, they sure are. And, um, you know, kind of circling back to the beginning of the conversation, they, they sure are as long as these things are safe. Right. And um, one thing you can say about, you know, about people, at least, you know, sober people is that, um, you know, they they are um, they're really difficult to, for an external actor to sort of influence to um to, to do something catastrophic to, to an aircraft, uh, digital components, on the other hand, do exactly what you tell them, 
uh, all the time. They they do exactly what you tell them. And so so much of what you know you and I have spent time thinking about and, and demonstrating is when there are ways for um, a nefarious person to get that system to do something uh, that maybe the, the people on board of that system or the owners of that system don't you know otherwise wouldn't want want to do and so i think it's important to emphasize that like the road to autonomy and the systems that we build into our fleet assets to enable autonomy by definition give the attacker all of the functionality that the attacker needs to exert control over that system and potentially do something really dangerous to it right so um, i know we talked a little bit about like how legacy assets are difficult to secure um, given that they're designed the way they are and it's hard to hard to make meaningful upgrades to security posture what are some of the things that you know say you were going to design a brand new system you could just you know snap your fingers and you'd see a whole bunch of um changes to to fleet assets what are you know how do we secure these things what would what would an ideal ideal kind of security control inventory look like on, on a fleet asset? So I think looking internal to the system first, um, I would pick a networking technology that meets all those real-time needs that we described earlier, but that also you know, has native um, authentication, encryption, uh, you know, confidentiality, and integrity of data. Uh, because what we often find on these control systems on, on systems is that or on large operational technology systems, is that the engineers designed the, the internal networks to uh, be heavily focused on the integrity of the data, but there's no confidentiality. Uh, so integrity and availability were, were prioritized. And so that CIA triad is kind of the first thing that comes to mind on the networking side. Uh, the second thing is that I would add some type of active monitor, um, some type of active on-the-side monitor to that internal uh, network system. And then the third is that I would focus on each of the computing modules, the electronic control units or LRUs or whatever whatever term you want to use, but all of those essentially endpoints that are controlling physical outcomes or have the ability to influence uh, you know, physical or, or, or even not physical outcomes on a, on a system. Those systems from the ground up hardware all the way through high level software should be built using modern security principles and practices. So secure operating processes and in operating processor architectures. Um, you know, let's move away. We have the technology to implement ASLR in depth and it, or even just simply stack canaries, right. And, and protect uh, execution memory from, uh, you know, these are, these are things that we often just don't have today on most control system, electronic control units. Uh, which is shocking. Uh, so let's implement some basics there. And then in the software uh, that we're laying on top of these systems, let's again implement all of the standard uh, you know, security features and, and paradigms that have kind of uh, passed the test of time over the last you know, 20, 25 plus years of security research. Um, you know, ensuring that everything from uh, libraries that are being used are coming from, you know, a, a secure, uh, you know, chain of custody and provenance uh, to testing code. Um, and critical elements of software need to be formally analyzed, meaning like let's write some mathematical algorithms to look at that code and ensure 
that it doesn't have errors and faults um, or or some type of anomaly that could be you know taken advantage of and, and turned into a vulnerability. Boy, I had one more. I was on the tip of my tongue, and Josh, I lost it. What am I missing? What do you, let me let me turn the question back on you. Yeah, I mean, I think we don't even. I mean, just because this is such a new frontier, I feel like we, for good reason, um, do you know what what you sort of did, which is we think about how we secure IT systems, and we say, you know, let's let's think about sensible analogies to, to this control measure in the OT context, right? I think, I think that's totally right. I think there are probably things for OT systems that we don't even, we're thinking about where maybe the analogy breaks down, you know, and we, we actually need additional control measures on top of it. Um, and I think, um, oh yeah, go ahead. You, you queued me up. So actually, so that jogged my memory again. I think that where the IT and OT models, where they diverge, is that operational technology systems usually have to be safety critical. And so there's an additional level of analysis that's typically done today already, where we look at, all right, where do we need to add redundancies, right? Every airplane has multiple mission processors or flight directors or flight controllers, so that if one fails, you know, another picks up. Satellites have voting processors so that if a couple get schwacked by some gamma rays or whatever, the thing can live on and it, it can recover. But we need to start thinking about resiliency um, as, as not just a failure mode, but also resiliency from all right, how do we recover um, or, or limit the damage from logical um, you know, errors, whether those are malicious, some type of cyber attack or accidental, like we see when you have Bad flight control software, and you know, in the, in the uh, the Max Eight tragedies, as an example. So I think that that's uh, something that's unique and different, and and maybe breaks the the model a little bit. But there's still some analog to that safety analysis that's currently done today, from a system engineering perspective. So say we like had an infinite budget, and we could put all of these control measures onto a new system. Is it still? Is it? Could an attacker still conceivably uh, compromise that system? Oh boy! Uh, so there's a there's a doctor out at the Air Force Research Lab um, that I think would say if we could apply like formal analytic techniques and and create the system architecture in a certain way that we could probably achieve, you know, a perfect and impenetrable system. Uh, just as a realist, and you know, like you, Josh, a practitioner of the real world. I don't know if if those resources are are necessarily available um, or if we'll get it right. I just don't have a lot of confidence in that. So maybe someday, but at least for the foreseeable future, I think that it's prudent and responsible um, to assume that uh, systems can be compromised and we need to design and monitor them with that in mind. I was just going to say, I mean, I think, you know, a whole... So much of the reason that we still, even with systems that have the ostensible like ability to be autonomous, we still want to put a person in there. And the reason is because that person can collect data sort of out of band and make decisions based on what they're seeing as to whether they need to intervene because there's something that's wrong, right? And to me, the analogy, even if we take the person out of that system is data. It's just like, 
you need more data so that you can make a decision about whether something is is within operating conditions or it's not. And that could be cybersecurity. It could be like it's, you know, operating characteristics. It could be for maintenance. And, um, you know, I think that's that's the through line with all the stuff we're talking about is it's data, data, data. Uh, data is required for the autonomous system to, to operate itself, to sense in the real world, to send data out for commands to, to move electronic control units and sensors and actuators and data is needed for the folks that own these assets and are responsible for their safe operations so you can make sure uh, in real time that uh, your assets are safe and that you know they haven't been compromised and you know I, I I totally agree with you I think data is absolutely the way of the future I think about um 5g too as something we haven't really talked a lot about but I think it's we haven't really like as a species contemplated what it's going to be like to have gigabit ethernet no matter where you are <laughs> you know like like that's you know it's transformative we, right transformative I mean, I mean i remember 10 years ago um making a, a a home purchasing decision it wasn't the only reason but it, it was a big maybe my i didn't tell my wife this at the time but a big factor of the house that i <laughs> advocated for when we moved to texas was that um uh, Google Fiber was 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 uh, was, Get was that fiber into the connection, area, you know, yeah. and, and now I mean that same speed, that same throughput, you're going to get, you know, through through one of these things. Um, Josh, we call people go. like you super users, by the way. <laughs> the telecoms uh, my, hate, hate us, right? My my wife my wife has other names, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think five G is going to allow us to. Um, with mobile assets, things you can't plug a Cat5 cable into, it's going to allow us to extract data off of these things at a, at a volume that we can't even like imagine at this point. And um, God, I'm so excited about what, that, what, the, what the potential of, of all that yeah, is. Yeah, the, the exciting thing about data is that you just don't know what you don't know. You don't know what problems you can solve when you have higher degrees of data, when you have higher fidelity, when you have greater look back. Um, you know, when you have uh, more engineering values at, at higher sample rates. I, I was talking with um, a couple industry leaders recently in the rail industry, and they said, we're already pulling more data off of our assets than we know what to do with. And um, and I was, I was struck by that comment because, first off, I was surprised to hear that. Because if we were to look back um, 50 years ago, I'm sure that I could find somebody that said, I'm pulling enough information or enough data out of my workforce, out of my assets that I know what to do with. And we would look at what they were collecting then and the problems that they were solving for. And we would say, oh boy, <laughs> this person has no idea like what they're in for. Um, and I, I think to your point, Josh, you, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, accumulating larger data sets and greater data acquisition enables problem solving um, enables opportunities that we have yet to discover. Um, now, there's an always an interesting argument about you know where should the data live and, and uh, does it all need to be backhauled? Right? Is edge processing enough? Um, but again, I think that that's kind of situational dependent, and I I suspect that my own views on where that cut line is and where the efficiency is kind of maximized for those different types of communication models and and uh, uh, you know, uh, processing models will evolve over time as, for example, 5G rolls out. Um, I mean, what if we could pull everything back and we didn't have to solve for 
an intermittent communications pipe or a small communications pipe. Um, it's going to be transformative, and we just don't know uh, how it's going to shape our lives, but there's no doubt that it will. I, I totally agree. And I think with that uh, far-reaching prognostication, it's probably a, uh, <laughs> uh, a, good, a good place to leave it. Uh, Mike, thank you, uh, as ever, for coming on the show. This was great, and I uh, look forward to having you on again on uh, real soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.